was looking at these papers that were like, oh, white rot fungi can degrade toluene. Oh, white rot fungi can degrade. The list just kept on going. And I'm like, why is this not a thing? Welcome to Applied Mycology. I'm your host, Leaf, here with your other host, Craig. Hello there. And that was today's guest, Lauren Saplicki. Now, I met Lauren back in 2015 when I was going to school, and in the first few years of my fascination with mycoremediation, and it was really interesting to learn about her research as she was doing things at a much higher academic level than I was aware of at the time. She was combining the techniques of environmental genetics and environmental engineering along with mycology to study fungi growing in soils at Superfund sites. In this episode, she breaks down some of her research and its implications. Lauren also helped us break down various environmental genetic research techniques, going back to their initial development in the 70s, up to today's next-generation sequencing and bioinformatic technologies. She also provides hypotheses on why commonly pursued methods of micromediation haven't always achieved the successes people have hoped for. I posit that in the past, those bioaugmentation efforts into soils with white rot fungi haven't been so successful because the soil communities, the soil fungi have already been established and have kind of fended off their colonization. And now into our conversation with Lauren. Thank you for joining us. Definitely excited to learn more about your work and some background and definitely some of the contributions you've made. Yeah, no, I'm very excited for this conversation because I remember when I first met you and learned about your work back in back in school, I was uh, kind of still in the early phases of getting interested in the topic of mycoremediation. I'd learned various things from different books and academic papers and and then I, I think I watched your presentation on some of the work we're going to discuss in this interview. And my immediate uh, thought was like, wow, this is a whole nother level that I was completely unaware that it got this sophisticated. And uh, it was hard for me to wrap my mind around it at the time, but I've, I've studied since then. So now it's super fascinating. But yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. Maybe to start out, you could just tell us a little bit about your professional and education background that's led you to where you are right now, and maybe tell us where you are right now. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to talk to you guys tonight. I am in Boulder, Colorado right now. I came out here three years ago after finishing my PhD at Duke. I was at Duke for like five years. And then before that, I was at the Ohio State University studying environmental engineering. And I started into environmental engineering because I grew up in like post-industrial Rust Belt, Ohio. And I just saw how prevalent pollution was. And I was unsatisfied with the current tools the current tools we have are like physical chemical treatment mostly and some bioremediation but the types of sites that had soil pollution were really restricted to mostly the physical chemical treatment methods so those were really expensive and the states didn't have unlimited money and they still don't so the 
program that takes care of cleaning up these abandoned polluted sites is called Superfund. It's a uh, pretty super fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I warned you guys. There might be puns. That's a fun pun when we're explaining bioremediation and some like, wait, wait, toxins are super fun. No, no, maybe brownfield, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when they are polluted and there are current like businesses around it or on it or linked to it, it's considered a brownfield. And if it's abandoned and if it reaches certain super toxic level, it'll make it to the national priorities list, which is this list O sites, the Superfund program has to clean up. Yeah, so they started this Superfund research program to study the environmental toxins and to create ways to better clean them up. So um, how did I find my way into micromediation? Oh yeah, I saw Paul Stamitz's TED Talk, Seven Ways That Mushrooms Can Save the World. And as an environmental engineer, I was like, oh, I want to save the world as a young, <laughs> naive environmental engineer. It's six I ways like, though, right? <laughs> oh yeah, six. Six ways in Sunday, so seven, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> There's always the do-nothing approach. <laughs> it was six ways, I guess. But I remember one of them being bioremediation. And I was like, that, that's what I want to do. And I had an internship at Battelle at the time, which was a really innovative environmental consulting firm. And I, I didn't see it happening a lot. Like if anyone was going to do the more innovative type of cleanups, like that were described by Paul in that talk, it would have been them. But I wasn't seeing it. I wasn't seeing it anywhere. And at the same time, I was looking at these papers that were like, white rot fungi, they should work. Oh, white rot fungi can degrade toluene. Oh, white rot fungi can degrade. The list just kept on going. And I'm like, why is this not a thing? So I went to Duke to carry out research in the lab of Dr. Claudia Gunch and also to work with Dr. Rita Svilgalese in mycology. And that's kind of how I found my way in, into fungi. Yeah. Or how they found their way to you. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to describe a brief summary of the work you did at Duke with fungi and superfund sites? Well, it was two. Yeah. There was a proof of concept one where I took a class. We just taught a class in, I think it was like microbial ecology, or maybe it was applied mycology. I'm not sure which one it was. It was so long ago, but I learned about how soil DNA could be extracted and then sequenced because that was the work that he was doing in his lab. And I was like, whoa, I wonder if there are white rot fungi in these soils. So I took a two-step approach. One of them was culturing soils from the Atlantic Wood Industries site, which was super polluted. Like, it's one of the most polluted sites in the world. What's it polluted with? It's polluted with polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which a long time ago, I want to say maybe from the 1920s is when the pollution started. 
the Atlantic Wood Industries wood treatment operations involved coating wood that was destined for final use in utility poles, for shipbuilding, for railroad ties. They just poured this coal tar creosote on it. Mm, um, and Yeah, and perhaps the most fun thing about coal tar creosote is that it didn't matter what the recipe was. So there were at least 35 different polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons in there. But a lot of times people would throw in other wastes that they wanted to get rid of. It's for a little, little bit so, of flavor. Yeah, yeah. It's like how everyone has a different chili recipe. Like oh, creosote chili. Everyone had a different creosote chili. And Atlantic Wood Industries in particular... So it was in Norfolk, Virginia, and it had a Navy base right next to it. They were like, oh, we'll take some of your waste to put in our creosote, maybe. So you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> so on top of like their creosote, they also had whatever junk the Navy was producing. So yeah, I wanted to see if there was even fungal DNA in those soils. And so... I extracted DNA, which was pretty difficult because when you're extracting DNA from soils, you have to have a violent enough method to get the DNA away from the soils, but you also want to have a gentle enough method not to shear the DNA to pieces after it's out there. So when you add creosote to the mix, it kind of makes it extra complicated. So there is a little bit of method development there. But yeah, so I extracted the soil DNA and then I used Redis's method to amplify different gene regions. I had ITS primers, ITS1F and ITS4. And then I also had some LSU primers, which amplified the more conserved large subunit gene. But a lot of people focus on the ITS. And so I was like, okay, well, ITS gives you more specific species information. I want to see the ITS. But the ITS didn't pick up the, like, there wasn't a band in my gel. So after you run a PCR, you run it on a gel, and then you, like, verify that your method worked by seeing, like, a band in the expected region, the size region. So, like, PCR just amplifies your genes, the gel electrophoresis is like a, a sieve, like a filter, but it uses, instead of mechanical screens, it uses the pores in a gel. Interesting. Maybe this will be yeah. a good time before we get into all the interesting results of your research to uh, step back a little and create some context with these genetic techniques that you've been talking about so far. Because I know you had a publication in 2016, which I found to be extremely useful for myself to read because it was a kind of an elegant overview and history of the development of genetic techniques for doing this type of environmental bioremediation screening and kind of what developments happened when. So we can give our listeners a little bit of a background of where all this stuff comes from. And if I remember correctly in that paper, you said the first uh, three like breakthroughs that allowed this to happen were cloning, Sanger sequencing, and PCR, or what you were just mentioning. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to just like 
explain what each of those things are, and then we can kind of like move along this timeline into today's genetic technology? Yeah. So cloning is where they insert a gene into E. coli. So any gene can be cloned into E. coli. Which is a bacteria, right? Which is a, a bacteria. Yeah. A lot of people might be familiar with like E. coli from like food recalls, but it's also the workhorse of molecular biology. Yeah. It's really interesting because these strains, they've been bred so long to really only survive on selected media like agar or liquid media. So, you know, in some lab work, people are like, oh my God, am I going to get infected? I'm like, well, you know, don't lick the plate. But <laughs> but other than that, I yeah. Think, <laughs> but yeah, these are kind of like the um, domestic cats equivalent. <laughs> They've been Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're domesticated and they're fancy. So people in the early days... They had environmental DNA or they had whatever DNA they got, and then they transformed it into these clones, into these E. coli. And then they extracted the DNA from the individual colonies because like one bacteria, they multiply, they just double, and each copy has the same genes. If you could spread them out on a plate such that one colony could be isolated from the others. You could make sure that there was one gene in each colony that would be from your environmental DNA. And so what they did was then they extracted DNA from those and then sequenced them like one at a time with Singer sequencing. Yeah, so it was about 1972 when the genetic cloning came about around... 77 or so when the Sanger sequencing technique was developed and then the other early development was PCR and you mentioned it a little bit earlier but could you just uh, describe a little bit more about what PCR is? Yeah so PCR is a molecular technique where you have DNA and then you have so DNA gets unzipped so it's two strands right it's a double helix But the two strands kind of unzip, and then there are complementary, they call them oligonucleotides, which are complementary little short sequences of between like 6 and 20 bases long. So DNA of A, T, Cs, and Gs. And if you know what you're looking for, you know the complement of what you're looking for. And so A's goes with T's and C's goes with G's. And so they develop these primers that are these little strands of DNA, the short little oligonucleotides. And they go in and land on the DNA when it's unzipped. And then an enzyme comes in and starts at the primer and then goes along each strand and fills in the complement. Without polymerizing so, it? Yeah, and so it does this hundreds, thousands of times, and then you amplify the DNA, the gene that you want, and then you can separate it out from the stuff you don't want on an agarose gel because DNA is negatively charged, and so it'll move along a electrical current. So it's like filtering water 
but instead of gravity pushing the water through your Brita, it's an electrical current pushing your DNA through a gel. Yeah, and I liked your metaphor you used earlier with the soil sieve as well. Yeah. I thought that was a good one too. And if I'm not mistaken, is one of the limitations of these early techniques is that they weren't really quantitative for the most part in terms of telling you the relative abundance of the different types of uh, DNA showed up, and that's why they developed quantitative PCR. Yep, mm-hmm. that is correct. Quantitative PCR it has a fluorescence in it, and so you can create a standard curve like a, a serial dilution across like a couple orders of magnitude and then have it have like a known quantity. Like if you expect your DNA or your gene copies to be 10 to the two, you'll have a standard curve covering 10 to the zero to 10 to the four. And the fluorescence with each amplification, with each cycle. So PCR, it doubles through each cycle. So if you do 30 cycles and you have this fluorescence that only emits light when it's incorporated in DNA, you can measure it after each cycle and then back calculate to see how much uh, you had at the start. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Um, I I did read about this concept of PCR bias. Is it true that it's like certain types of DNA are might inherently replicate more in this process than others. So there's kind of uh, something you have to be aware of when assessing this yeah. data. It's kind of like um, whoever raises their hand the most in class. Isn't it like the more abundant, the more often that reaction will amplify it? So there are two kinds of PCR bias I can think of right now. <laughs> two common kinds of PCR bias are really simple. It's got two types and it's 1% is species A and it's 99% species B, you might not even pick up species A because or all that your reaction is multiplying is species B. So that's one type. And then the other type is that which comes from the primer choice. So you have to kind of make a call because you have to know like roughly what gene you want to start with. So a lot of the primer design is meant to capture the fungi that we know because the fungi we know are aligned and then the sequences are aligned rather. And then the variable regions, the ones that are different for the different species are bounded by these more conserved regions. But the more hypervariable your gene is, the more you risk primer bias because like you don't really know how stable your conserved region is. And so that's kind of what happened with the proof of concept study. Like I wanted to see the ITS region, but the ITS 1F and the ITS 4 primer set was more biased against non-white rot fungi. So it turned out that the site had a lot more ascomycetes than we had thought. And so it made sense in the end why the large subunit worked and the ITS region did it. We just weren't finding the ITS region 
And that's something too, because looking into some of the research, sometimes you're sequencing them and there are no known reference hits. Some fungi don't even have an ITS region. Like the fact that fungi are, they're a bit mysterious in that way or a bit complex because some of the standard assays for looking at some of the primer regions, you'll have to get creative and design your primers because some of them may not have been studied thoroughly at all. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that they're different. Yeah, they probably haven't been studied at all. Maybe they're not sequenced at the very least if they are studied. And so there aren't many database representatives to design primers for. Now let's uh, move forward another step in the history of these genetic techniques into the realm of whole genome shotgun sequencing and uh, other techniques that have arisen as a result, like amplicon surveys, metagenomics, metatranscriptomics. I'm just I'm just throwing all the big words out there. But w- would you like <laughs> to uh, clean up my mess here, Lauren, and tell the listeners what these things are and why they're important? You threw out a lot of big words and a lot of concepts. Whole genome shotgun sequencing, that's just extracting DNA from whatever you're interested in and then fragmenting it, cutting it up into bits randomly, and then sequencing it using, well, it's kind of sequencing agnostic, but or sequencing platform agnostic, but it's called shotgun sequencing because it's like quasi-random what bits are that get sequenced. But the idea is that there will be enough overlap so that you can align them and then you can figure out what your DNA sequence is. And it's whole genome because it's like one organism and that's the only way that they could align it because it'd be kind of impossible to align a mixed community. Mm -hmm. I think I was reading that technique developed around when they were trying to sequence the human genome with the human genome project. Yeah. It cost $2.7 billion to sequence the human (laughs) genome the first time. Oh, yeah. Oh, Yep. That sounds about right. And the point of the trajectory of this conversation is is we're trying to get at how much the genetic technology has advanced and become more accessible and well, it costs less than $2.7 billion to sequence a genome these days, I imagine, right? Yeah, yeah. So if that was still the cost, my microbes would just be unknown. <laughs> Nothing in my study would actually work. It's, it's, <laughs> and it's, it would just be a dream. Well, it's kind of amazing the capacity that such a large project created where now we can actually like look into molecular ecology which looking into some of your papers like addresses a lot of the complications where maybe people were only looking at white rot fungi off the bat. You know, I myself was only looking at white rot fungi off the bat, but I kept culturing all these non-white rot fungi and then taking them over to the mycology lab and they'd they'd look at them and they'd be like, oh, no, this isn't what you want. This isn't what you want. This isn't what you want. Like, God damn it. How many times? Yeah, I threw out so many, so many things that I thought just weren't what I was looking for. And then I thought to look at this, uh, this paper and I was like, oh, so I think it was a, a harms and co-authors Nature Review where they looked at all of the contaminants across all of the different 
fungi that had been studied in a microremediation sort of context. And they grouped them based on their taxonomy. And they found that actually there were like a bunch of representatives from pretty much every large taxonomic grouping, which meant like white rot fungi weren't the only ones that could degrade these pollutants. That like the basal lineages could, that the parasitic lineages could also. And like the ascomycetes, the chytrids, they were also really capable of degrading pollution. And it wasn't just like the easy pollution. It was these really tough PAHs too. And so I was like, oh, oh, I think we have something here. Is whether the pH is being hydrophobic, does that play into why they're harder to remediate? Yeah. So they stick to soils really hard. They are hydrophobic, which means they are afraid of water. The breakdown of the word hydro means water and phobic, phobia means a fear. So these chemicals just like don't go into water very easily. And that means they stick to whatever isn't water, which is soils when they spill into the environment. Yeah, I thought an interesting point that was raised in your paper, which I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but it's relevant to what we're talking about now. Uh, where you're isolating some of these ascomycetes from the soil and then testing their ability to degrade anthracene, a type of PAH. And uh, there was this idea that the same way we think of how white rot fungi and the you know basidiomycete group use their wood degrading mechanisms to break down pollutants, the same enzyme systems they would use to degrade lignin and you know hard wood structures that there might be an analogous thing with the ascomycetes, but instead of it being about wood degradation, it's saying that they're mechanisms of attaching to hydrophobic surfaces, which in the natural world, in the ecology, might be that these fungi are trying to attach to the surface of plant leaves or plant tissue, and those mechanisms to attach these things that are not necessarily easy for a fungus to attach to might be at play with them also dealing with these you know, hydrophobic chemicals on the soil surface. Yeah, so they have this group called hydrophobins. And ascomycetes are like a really diverse group, but I used a fungus that was very, like it had three different styles. So it could feed off of other fungi, a mycoparasite. It could lift soils off of organic matter, organic matter, or it could grow on wood. For all of our uh, mushroom cultivators out there listening, you said that this fungus can parasitize other fungi. What's the the name of the genus? Oh, it's a trichoderma. (laughs) Yes. Mushroom (laughs) cultivator's bane, as some people call it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, trichoderma. It's convenient because it was sequenced. And so I knew what genes to look for. It was sequenced because it's also an important biocontrol agent. So like the fungi that grow on corn, the farmers use it to parasitize those fungi. You can Um, buy like pouches of them, which is kind of crazy if you told a a mushroom cultivator. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, please, I'll give it to you for free. (laughs) But yeah, so I set up these experiments where 
I had fungi with a wood source with a, a source of chitin, which is what the, the fungal cell walls are made of. And I also set up a group with cellulose, which was a proxy for leaf litter. And I put this proxy for PAHs, uh, anthracene, which has three carbon rings. They're called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons because of their ring structure. Like they have these conjugated ring systems. Some of them have two rings and some of them have eight rings. And so I picked a three ring one, which was kind of right in the middle. And it was also maybe not the most toxic one, which is convenient. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I watched for that degradation as I saw growth happening. And I was like, okay, which one of these is going to be the right food? Because I knew that different enzymes might have different degradation capacity after looking at like the lacases and the ligninases. So I, I was somewhat aware that enzymes might have different activities regarding these pollutants. And I wanted to see if one was more appropriate for a model ascomycete. And you know what? The ones that were happy growing on wood, they were so white and so fluffy and they were just like happy little clams. They had negligible degradation. The ones that were like hardly eking out a living on the chitin had a lot of degradation. And the ones that were growing on the cellulose had pretty similar amounts of degradation. And mm. so like the takeaway there was that we've been feeding the fungi the wrong things. We've been feeding them wood and yeah, they've been happy, but what they really needed to degrade the pollution wasn't wood because there weren't wood rotting fungi there. There were just yeah. like the, so you're talking the about ones. Specifically this trichoderma species that's growing on wood, but it's not really breaking down much of the contaminant. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, well, that makes sense with what people have tried. So maybe to give some background on what people have tried. So people tried everything to get the wood rotters to do their job in the soils. They placed little baits to get them to colonize one bait to the next one. They're like little wooden blocks. They tried adding wood chips and seeing if anything happened after the wood chips, like if you want to stimulate fungal growth still and you ask a, an environmental engineer, they'll tell you wood. Just give them wood chips. But that's not really what we saw to be helpful here in the context of pollution degradation. Hmm, so stimulating fungal growth and degrading pollutants don't necessarily go hand in hand, it sounds like. And yeah. you also mentioned how the low level of chitin amendment increased degradation a lot more than adding a higher amount of chitin and like maybe because there's too much high quality food for the fungus so it's not really eating the contaminant it's like if you got a you know lobster tail buffet sitting right there are you really gonna eat the peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> yeah that's a great analogy i love it <laughs> yeah i found it really fascinating it's the fact that i believe it was the trichoderma where it was like basically was scavenging the carbon from the anthracene, which is fascinating to think about, which kind of speaks to, I think, some of your research, you mentioned that the reason why fungi are such a strong candidate for remediation is because a lot of these enzymes are not specific. They're kind of more general. So 
yeah yeah it's interesting how like if generally they're producing these enzymes that are not specific what kind of enzymes are they going to be regulating when they're hungry you know when they're actually starved for carbon mm-hmm. yeah while we're still talking about this trichoderma study I'm not going to let you off the hook yet with uh, explaining to us what all these genetic terms are, because I know this study involved amplicons and metagenomic analysis. Could you explain what those are and how they related to uh, your methodology in this trichoderma biodegradation study? Yeah, so (laughs) thank you for keeping me on track. Amplicon metagenomics, sometimes it's called barcode studies. So you have your PCR and you pick a gene and you look for it in your mixed microbial community. So you extract DNA, then you pick an organism of interest and you have a gene that you're also interested in. So I was looking at fungi. So I picked a gene that was general enough to capture most fungi, but more specific so that it didn't capture bacteria or any plants or anything else that was not fungi. So I had this gene, which was the large subunit, targeted a sequence on the large subunit. And then I added adapters to allow it to be sequenced on this next generation sequencing platform, which evolved from Sanger sequencing. First, it was Sanger sequencing, which was like the chain termination method. So they had a bunch of DNA and like nucleotides or bases that would stop polymerization further. So at the end, when they ran it on a gel, they had a sequence of from short to long, the exact sequence of your bases. So if you had your first base in your sequence as an A and your second base in your sequence as a C, your gel, you'd read it from the bottom as an A and then as a C. And then the next termination would be the third letter in the sequence. So that went on to 454 sequencing, which did that sort of reaction in a different, more high throughput way. And then as that kind of evolved into this next generation of platforms that did things and they changed the chemistry in different ways. But the point is, is that they were cheaper. (laughs) So when I was doing it, when I was uh, sequencing, it was like $100 per sample. And that is a lot more easy to justify than whatever, $2.7 million. Billion. Billion dollars per sample. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Sounds a little bit better. Yeah. There's a really amazing graph that's up on the National Institute of Health website, the NCBI, the National Center for Biotechnology Information. And it basically explains that the cost of sequencing and synthesizing DNA just absolutely kind of cratered out in the late 2000s. So this is why a lot of the molecular biology is really the next biggest thing because it's happening faster than the information computing revolution. Yeah. And for perspectives, like for a genome, hundreds of millions of dollars, we're now approaching the point of sequencing genomes of around $1,000, which is pretty wild and with high resolution. Oh, yeah. I am so glad that I came into this field when I did. So after I 
did the PCR to hone in on the gene that I wanted and then had a, a second step which added the adapters that were specific to the platform. I sequenced it on this Illumina MySeq and there was a barcode sequence in the adapters. So, Could you uh, briefly clarify or make the relation between barcodes and amplicons? Yeah. So amplicons are just what they call PCR products. It's like the DNA that's being amplified? Yeah. It's what you have after you go through the polymeric chain reaction, which you're basically amplifying the DNA. So amplicon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. great. So it's, I think it was back in 2003, a number of people were looking at the concept that there are these regions of genomes across organisms that are pretty conserved. They don't change too much. Usually these are genes like the ribosome. You know, you don't want your ribosome to mutate because it's pretty essential for synthesizing proteins. But then also often these regions are flanked by these spacer regions. So you can have this area of conserved but also variable DNA, and that can act like a barcode. So the idea is much like when you go in the grocery store, you'll scan that barcode, which syncs up to a UPC, a universal product code. We could identify these short regions which are around 500 base pairs on different species that we could very easily identify them, get them to genus close enough. And maybe even if working with some other primers on some more variable regions, even get them down to species as well. So when I'm talking about barcodes in my method, I'm talking about like indexes, like short sequences of maybe from six to eight base pairs long that are known and that let me track the sequences back to their original samples. At the end of that, I had a bunch of DNA sequences and I needed to sort them back into their samples because I took samples from different soils with different pollution loads. And I wanted to see if pollution was a selective pressure for certain fungi, like if some fungi were more adapted to the high pollution than others. Yeah, so I tracked those back and I created a tree of how related they were to each other. And I found that the ascomycetes far outnumbered the basidiomycetes, which are the taxonomic group for white rot fungi. And you're saying that this increased abundance of ascomycetes was in samples that were more contaminated? Yeah. So it sounds like the ascomycetes might contain more organisms that have a higher pollution tolerance and that do better in more contaminated environments than basidiomycetes or other types of fungi. Yeah, well, in soils, you know, like if you think about your typical soil fungi, they're not the wood rotting fungi because wood isn't really in soils in super high quantities. You know, it's like there's a log on like the surface, but where the pollution is, it's deep in the soils. So I guess it kind of made more sense to me that there would be typical soil fungi having these tolerances. Yeah. So would you say that this part of the research where you're figuring out what all the fungal genomes are in your soil samples, does this qualify as metagenomics? It's technically metagenetics, but that doesn't Uh sound quite as great. So, or maybe (laughs) the, the branding people who like decided 
uh, metagenetics versus metagenomics decided to go with the metagenomics but we're focusing in on one gene yeah (laughs) so metagenomics is whole genomes whole genomes of a whole environment right yeah and so i i have one more one more genetics term I want to get clarity on here, and then we can move yeah. on into the, to more of the discussion. But we just outlined metagenomics, and then there's metatranscriptomics, right? And that's uh, more of measuring the functions yeah. in the sample versus who's there, more of like what's happening. Let me see that RNA. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So biology 101. DNA has all of your functions that you'll ever need. And then at any point in time, you have genes that are expressed. And so say you're a fungus and you wanna eat some food. So you need to make an enzyme to put out into the environment. Well, you look at your DNA and you're like, okay, which part of this has my instructions for how to make my enzyme. Oh, this part. So then there's a copy that has instructions for the enzyme and that's called RNA. And then that goes to a different part of your cellular machinery to be built into proteins. Is this my cellular machinery or the fungus's cellular machinery? Every organism. Every organism. What? Are you saying we're all related? (laughs) yes yeah we are yeah because everyone has cells right and you as a eukaryote are more related to the fungus that is also eukaryote than to a bacterium which is a prokaryote yeah just simmer on that for a little bit Um, (laughs) eukaryote or a mekaryote yeah (laughs) holy (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I'm going to use that one. But yeah, so here you're like, you're this fungus. You have your instructions somewhere in your library, and then you write a copy down just so you can like give it to your cellular machinery to build proteins. So that little copy is RNA. And then the RNA can also be extracted just in a similar way that like a DNA extraction is done, but it's much more intensive. Some of my RNA extraction took like upwards of 12 hours, whereas a DNA extraction Ooh. took like two hours, but it can be done. So that first transcript is going to work. Yeah. So that's not even involving that step. It's just getting the RNA out first. So DNA is more stable than RNA. So you do this special reaction involving reverse transcriptase, which makes a copy of your RNA called cDNA. And then cDNA is sequenced in metatranscriptomics. It also can be directly used RNA. If you use it quick enough, you can do sequencing right on the RNA. There's like an RNA-seq method too. So you don't always have to do that extra step. Metatranscriptomics is the sequence of all of the RNA that's in an environment, which tells you what notes are being written down to make stuff into proteins. Yeah, so proteomics, oh, it's so different, but it's so 
Like it's it's new, but it uses analytical chemistry methods that have existed forever. Well, I don't want to say forever, but you know, relatively forever. So it's super elegant. Proteins are what the enzymes that degrade stuff are. So they're the end result. And a lot can happen between the RNA step and the protein actually getting made correctly. So if you really want to know what's going on, you look at the proteins. Mm. That's like the actual end function versus the, it's like the, the genetics or the genomics is the, it's like the library and the RNA is like the book getting pulled off the shelf. And then the proteomics is like, did someone actually read the book and learn what they were supposed to out of it? Yeah. So if to bring your uh, PB&J back into the story, say you have a book about PB&J making, like how do you make a PB&J? Then someone taking it off the shelf would be the RNA. And then the proteins is like, okay, they actually assembled a PB&J and the PB&J exists somewhere and you're measuring it on the HPLC or the GCMS, this analytical chemistry. You're actually measuring the presence of these proteins or chemicals at that point. And mm -hmm. in your research with these uh, creosote super fund sites, did you do any of this uh, metatranscriptomics or proteomics work? I did metatranscriptomics. Nice. Yeah. What did you learn from it about the fungi and what they were doing? My method that I developed is to first detect what fungi are in a soil, and then you can use what you know about their fungal ecology, like what they're used to eating, to figure out what to feed them. So I figured if there weren't wood-rotting fungi in the soils at high numbers, then what's the point in giving them wood? So I gave them cellulose and chitin. And then I looked at the active communities over time using these um, metatranscriptomics. But I used this, I guess it's targeted metatranscriptomics. So I used the same gene because it makes it into the transcript phase. So the large subunit is conserved and so people don't really use it over more variable regions like the ITS, but good reason for using it here was that it made it into the transcription phase. So I could tell whether different parts of the communities were active or not. And that's the thing you can't really get with DNA. You can kind of get a proxy of how many, like if it exists there, then in recent history, it might've been active, but there's also the possibility that those fungi were dormant or the genes were just in the soils. But with this targeted metatranscriptomic approach that I took, I was able to see who was active. Hmm. And then I looked at that over a series of time. And I also measured degradation over time. And I saw that there were different successions happening which was all really interesting. The parts of the community that I witin to feed with the chitin and the cellulose 
they were actually like responding to the chitin in the cellulose. So I saw like lots of chitin degrading chytrids and ascos in the chitin treatments and lots of leaf litter degraders in the cellulose treatments. So these techniques using transcriptomics, do you think some of these newer omics techniques being transcriptomics, but also metabolomics, which is looking also at the molecules and comparing with the, uh, the transcripts, do you think that's kind of the future where things are going in this kind of omics centric that we can answer a lot of questions, not only from the sequence data, not only from the transcript data, but also the whole concept of looking at those molecules and metabolites they're producing? Yeah, I think the amount of data that you can gather is really, really interesting. I think that there's a lot of unknowns still, like linking them together. So you can only say so much about that. Like you can only generalize it so much, but you can definitely tell what's going on to an unprecedented level, combining metabolomics and proteomics and transcriptomics and genomics. What are some techniques or procedures on that are kind of on the horizon that you're interested in? What are some techniques in the same vein of the omics that are kind of going forward in the future that you kind of see for future research or future applications that you've heard about or excited about? Well, I'm really excited now. I'm really excited about taking this out of the lab. And so I'm working with a couple commercial labs to try and replicate my method. People could send them soil samples and they could get back their fungi. But I think that there's also a lot of room for bioinformatics. The bioinformatics is getting really sophisticated now. And so I think that synthesis of all of the information about an environment or about like a soil from every level, the metagenetics for meta metagenomics and the script metatransomics going to be, if we're not already at a point where we can synthesize all of those and integrate them and make actual models. So you mentioned bioinformatics, and and this all sounds like a whole lot of information and data. Uh, How are people able to go through it all or make meaning of it with just all the raw data that's going on here? Uh, Big data. I didn't really like programming to begin with, but then it just became a necessity. So I had to like dust off my old Python skills and my C++ skills. And now I used my C++ knowledge to learn Python enough to be dangerous with it. But there are these packages that exist that other people developed that you can alter for your own purposes. So chime for example or r and r programming and python so these are too big to visualize on a excel chart so they call them bioinformatic pipelines and they help you sort through your raw sequences and then put them against a database along with some quality filtering and really identify who is there from their sequences and well from genetic sequences what they're doing from their transcript level information and or what they're producing from the proteomics 
and metabolite levels. This is really fascinating because I think a lot of times when we hear about things like machine learning and AI, big data stuff, we're thinking about, you know, like companies trying to take our data and information and make profiles about us to sell us things. But, uh, yeah. you know, the same, the same techniques are also how we can potentially understand on a somewhat granular level what's actually going on in the soil. So we're just doing oh, yeah. the mass surveillance and the microbes leaf after all. However, maybe we can use, maybe maybe we can use this for good rather than trying to serve it's you mass, ads for for things you like. It's mass about. surveillance all the way down. <laughs> mass biomass surveillance. So. That's great. Well, let, let me pose uh, a complimentary question to you, Craig. Uh, do you have any methods or techniques in this realm of uh, bioinformatics and uh, molecular genetics stuff that you're excited about? Yeah. So it's. Definitely, this is something where it's kind of reading through Lauren's paper where she kind of summarized the whole genome approach. These technologies are becoming more and more affordable to actually generate the data and get it to, so to synthesize the DNA, you need to do the assays and then to sequence the DNA after to get your data and to digitize it. So now the big push is to like get into the bioinformatics and learning programming is a thing where, oh, you're a biologist. Maybe, you know, there's always a joke saying like, oh, biologists are afraid of math. Well, maybe like biologists, you know, the closest thing they can get to close up to math is learning how to program. But yeah, there's a lot of crazy techniques now because even for these things where you can even do simulations and models and potentially guess based upon the sequence data of an organism and understanding, okay, what are these clusters of genes? What are they producing? How can I guess what they're doing? You can kind of simulate in silico, kind of in situ in the soil, but you can also mimic these models on a computer system. So that's one thing that's really fascinating because you can actually basically do experimental design before you have to do any wet lab chemistry or in soil chemistry or, or any physical application. But some of the exciting stuff that's on the horizon now is an extension on molecular biology, which is synthetic biology. Part of allowing us to synthesize a DNA for cheaper, a lot of these oligonucleotides, which are basically the primers you're using for PCR or, or a number of these different reactions, RT-PCR, you know, which are essential to do this higher throughput next generation sequencing generate products which get sequenced is synthetic biology so there's a really fascinating um technique that will kind of allow us to look at the active soil microbes and, and lauren you, you mentioned that you would use transcriptomics or metatranscriptomics to kind of do multiple iterations over time to kind of look at the activity in the soil mm -hmm. yeah yeah so on that same note the active proportion is really important right because the one thing I think you mentioned was that you're not really sure whether when you're doing this work, if like you're getting the active, the dormant or the dead or just extracellular DNA. It's kind of like if I was um, alien anthropologist, right? And I wanted to study human beings living in the New York City metropolitan area, you know, it'd be kind of the same equivalent if I took a core sample that was a mile wide and a mile deep, right? Probably getting a number of things in the geological epochs over several hundred millions of years. Um, so I don't know what's the mix of that stuff. So you're getting some information, but unless you did like the snapshots like you did, it all comes down to the experimental design. Anyway, getting back to point, there are these, some of these synthetic biology techniques which are fascinating. One of them has quite an amazing uh, acronym. It's called short uh, BONCAT FACS. So here we are for a nice mouthful. BONCAT stands for Bio-Orthogonal Non-Canonical Amino Acid Tagging. And FACS stands for Fluorescence Activated Cell Sorting. 
So basically what that means is what you're doing is you're taking an amino acid. You're pretty much taking an amino acid that is, you know, bioorthogonal. So meaning adjacent to something that's biologically available and you're modifying it. So what they're doing is through this bioorthogonal is they're taking an amino acid, methionine, I, I believe, and they're modifying it. They're adding an azide group, which is now this bioorthogonal amino acid is called uh, HPG or uh, homo glycine, which I butchered it, I'm sure. But the thing is, in general, it's an amino acid you can incubate with your soil bacteria you sample. And basically, they'll take up this amino acid and use it in their protein synthesis. So they'll be having in their proteins an amino acid that is still functional but doesn't affect it too much. But they'll have this little adapter that can bind to a fluorescent dye. And then they can sort the active microbes and compare them back upon the traditional DNA sequencing or the metagenomics you would think there. So you can sort the active proportion as well. So a lot of the synthetic biology is pretty amazing and the factor of understanding what populations are out there by sorting the active fraction to the, the background environmental sample you're doing. Another amazing example was how we can potentially prospect microbes that are out there in the environment. One example was a study where they found a, a site where there was petroleum contamination. They were able to culture some Pseudomonas pudia. Um, so Pseudomonas bacteria are known as some of the remediator, candidate remediator species. So they understood that these were surviving in a contaminated environment. So they're the part of the generations that have survived and started to learn how to figure out how to metabolize these contaminants. So they co-cultured them in a petri dish with E. coli, a certain strain of E. coli, DH5-alpha, like, like the fancy cat, you know, the, the workhorse of molecular <laughs> biology. And what they did was one common thing in synthetic biology in these fancy cat E. coli or these special laboratory-grade E. coli, you can get them to express certain proteins from a genes on a genetic circuit. And on this genetic circuit, this plasmid, they packed a number of genes for enzymes that can degrade petroleum hydrocarbons. So since we know in soil microbial communities, they're constantly talking to one another, but also sharing information, also genetic information. So they're able to co-culture the Pseudomonas pudia with the transformed E. coli, transform me basically inserting this plasmid with this genetic circuit. And then they horizontally gene transfer naturally in the co-cultured environment from the E. coli to the Pseudomonas pudia. And then basically we're able to reintroduce Pseudomonas pudia with this set of useful genes back into the environment. And I believe they saw a 45% reduction in the contamination. So it's amazing because we can use synthetic biology to look at the active portions of microbes and even to kind of give those active microbes that are doing what they're doing well in the environment a boost up, up until they consume most of the petroleum hydrocarbons. Because you were saying, Lauren, that these microbial populations will, you share this information, but once it's not of use anymore, they'll kind of just throw it away or basically mm -hmm. won't be expressed. So that's a potential yeah. way of how you could utilize a natural capacity and natural ways that genes are expressed in microbial communities while also giving them a step up or, or giving them kind of a, like a booster seat. I, kind of the analogy, right? If, if you're trying to chop wood with a Swiss army knife, you're having a little trouble, right? But if someone came along and gave you a hatchet, you'd have a lot easier time trying to chop that wood. And then, you know, after you're done chopping it, you kind of just put the hatchet away and go back to your Swiss army knife to whittle some kindling, you know? Yeah. These strategies are somewhat available to citizen scientists or practitioners, but like there are commercial labs that all you need to do is send them your soil samples or whatever environmental media is polluted. You could send them water, you could 
filter air onto a filter and send them the filter. You could send them soils and they'll extract DNA from whatever you send them. And then they'll do the library prep, the barcoding and the slash indexing, and then they will sequence it for you. And they'll also do the bioinformatics to get you a closest ID. So maybe I think you would get a genus. You might get a species, but you'll get that information from them. But if you want to do it, like say you have a little lab, there are these bento box PCRs or bento box bento labs, I think is what they're called. Yeah, it's like a, it's um, like a lab in a like a lab in a suitcase or a footprint about its equivalent to a suitcase. Yeah, so it's like actually a little lab. <laughs> you can just roll it around and do it where you can do your DNA extractions all the way through your PCRs, and you can even run gels on them and it's so like miniaturization of things because it makes it more field adaptable and more affordable to citizen scientists but yeah so you could have whatever size lab you want and then you could send it to a commercial sequencer actually you know what i'm really excited about is this nanopore oh. um, sequencer yeah, yeah, that's it's so cool. <laughs> it's the size of a flash drive, and you plug it into your computer and you can sequence in real time. You can see the sequences that are, are coming up. What's in my time. pot? Yeah, and, it's so cool, and it gets super long reads too, right? Yeah, super long reads. Last I checked, they had a, an error rate problem, but they also have developed a bioinformatics-based method to kind of recognize those and, and filter them out. So, Do you want to clarify what that means for our listeners about reads being long or short and why that's kind of important for certain types of experiments or resolving certain information from an experiment? Yeah. So my gene, the gene that I used in my experiments was like 500 to 600 base pairs long. The chemistry different platforms allows for different lengths of reads. So I could only get 200 high quality reads from mine. So the Illumina chemistry I used was like a paired end reading. So they'd read 200 bases from the front of the gene and 200 bases from the back of the gene. And then if you had like a gene that was like short enough, like say 300 base pairs, then you had sufficient overlap. So you could be really certain about your entire gene length, entire sequence along every 300 bases, each base of the 300. But I could only use 200 of either side of the gene that I was looking at. So I couldn't be as sure about the fungi that I had. So a lot of them, I just got to the genus level, which was enough because the organisms that I found weren't the well-studied ones. So it wouldn't really have helped if I had high certainty in some weird chytrid lineage. Yeah. So, I mean, based on all these techniques you guys are talking about, I'm getting the sense that there might be more to this micro-remediation stuff than throwing oyster spawn on an oil spill. <laughs> no, you need um, to drop it out of a helicopter. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, 
Um, so <laughs> At to, least kind, not in soils. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're medium by medium. And that's a very important point. Like we're talking contaminant by contaminant, media by media. But to kind of mm-hmm. bring this full circle, uh, based on your research with these Superfund sites, if someone was to take their soil sample and they thought their soil was contaminated and send it to a lab to get this kind of genomics transcriptomics data back would that allow someone to be guided in terms of what type of amendments they should make to the soil to stimulate the fungi that are already there or do we need to do more research before we can accurately guess those types of things and i guess to add on to that do you think like what you learned about these chitin and cellulose amendments from doing these, these are laboratory microcosm experiments where you have mm-hmm. like a, a vial that was having some fungal culture and some contaminants added, but do you think we're at a point where we can take this information and apply it in the field or say there's a follow-up project that wanted to test amendments at an actual field contaminated site? Like what approach would yeah. you want to go about? Yeah. My, so one small correction there, my soil microcosms used weathered pollutants. The soil pollutants were actually originally there from possibly the beginning of the soil pollution. So they weren't freshly added, which makes them extra hard to degrade because people have done experiments where they like added creosote to fresh soils and they found that they were way easier to degrade because they hadn't like fully attached to the soil particles yet. That's an important point. And actually I was just reading an article because I was involved in a project working on atrazine and they tested, it was turkey tail, Trimides versicolor growing in flasks. And they had one batch where it was a uh, like laboratory grade atrazine solution from like Sigma Aldrich or something. And then mm-hmm. I had an atrazine that was actually from a commercial uh, herbicide that was like actually the formulation that would be applied and found the turkey yeah. tail could degrade the atrazine from the pure uh, standard way better than it could degrade the atrazine from the, you know, actual form that it would be used in the environment. Oh, cool. Standards versus yeah. real world variables. Which it made me think of when you're talking about the weathered contaminants not being the same as just like throwing in a anthracene, uh, you know, standard stock solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my experiment was like over the course of 30 days and I saw a lot of degradation over the course of 30 days, like more than 85%. The controls was just like the basal medium. So I used a nutrient solution, like the equivalent of Gatorade, but I didn't just add Gatorade. That would have been very much, much simpler though. Uh, but no, I, I made like a special formulation and added it to provide nutrients, the, the fungi and the bacteria. And then I also added chitin to one group of vials and cellulose to another group of vials along with the nutrient solution. And over the course of 30 days, even in the one without any additional like carbon source, that is chitin or cellulose, I saw like 85% degradation. So I think there's a lot more to learn about what the fungi need and what the bacterial co-conspirators need 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that's like, a topic like we, we weren't we aren't going to have time yeah. to talk about that today yeah. but maybe maybe you should come back on the show yeah. later we can get into that whole thing of the biological consortia and the fungal bacterial yeah. synergism the soil superorganism per se mm-hmm. the fungi have been found to do the initial step of degradation and then they're more accessible to bacteria and then the bacteria take it the rest of the way so they work together to degrade the pollution. Yeah. So I think that like if a citizen scientist wanted to use my lab studies, they would first need to do like a pilot study on a small volume of soil or a small, like if it's a, that oil spill that you were talking about, they would just do it like on a small scale. Lauren, just one last clarification. Could you go just briefly over the comparison of biostimulation versus bioaugmentation or in the aspect of working with fungi and micromediation, mycostimulation and mycoaugmentation? Yeah. So everything we've talked about here regarding like investigating the on-site microbes, that has been biostimulation because we're looking for what fungi are there and then we're just trying to stimulate their activity. We're just adding nutrients. We're not adding actual organisms. Whereas the traditional approach that mostly center around white rot fungi, that's been a bio-augmentation approach. So you augment the environment with your organism. And I posit that in the past, those bio-augmentation efforts into soils with white rot fungi haven't been so successful because the soil communities, the soil fungi have already been established and have kind of fended off their colonization attacks. That's an important distinction to make. I guess we were just diving straight into the <laughs> into the next level. And uh, thank, thanks for creating that context there, Craig. It's uh, it's, it's all about reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which which yeah. which way is up? At a certain point, you're like, how? Wow, I'm really deep in this, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and hopefully, you know, we we're using a lot of complicated uh, terminology, but hopefully, part of the benefit people get from listening to this is if they're if you're someone who likes to try to read scientific literature on microremediation, but hasn't doesn't necessarily have the academic background for all the terms. Hopefully, you know, some of the stuff we've talked about, you'll start seeing these terms in the papers and they'll make a little more sense to you. Yeah. And my review paper on the the different tools throughout the ages is really, it's free. It's not behind a paywall. All you have to do is sign up and they'll let you download it. Yeah. I, I'd highly recommend reading that one. That one was very informative for me. And I guess uh, just a, a final question, maybe there'll be another one, but <laughs> taking it to the listeners, especially if there's anyone who's, say, going to college, like a young academic, or maybe someone who's just a citizen scientist or a practitioner or a permaculturalist or whatever, who's like got the, caught the micro-remediation fever. What, what kind of advice would you give to you know, people who are trying to get into this type of work in terms of how to prepare yourself, how to find useful topics to research? Because it can be so vast. So I would say start with a couple good review papers. The good thing about review papers is that they do all the summarization for you and anything that you're interested in or any particular thing you're not really sure about, like they reviewed like over a hundred papers for each review paper. So 
review papers are really good at framing things and at giving you further reading direction. Yeah, like you said, it couldn't be just so vast and you don't know where to start. I would start with the Harms and co-authors 2001 nature paper. And then however easy you think it's gonna be, quadruple the anticipated effort. 4X, because yeah. <laughs> when, when I was doing my graduate research, any new laboratory uh, procedure I attempted, I, I eventually was like, however long I think this will take me, I need to assume it's going to take four times that long to do. Yeah. So like initially I was like very much like, oh, this is going to, this is so simple. Why aren't people doing it? And then, yeah, it was like, even with the pilot program, everything takes like four times as long and costs four times as much as you think it is going into it. So I think it's important to like, remember why you started. Be persistent, <laughs> just like don't give up. If it's more expensive than you think it is, make friends with a good fundraiser. And it's you one know? step at a time. Yeah. And also don't be afraid to read the instructions very carefully. <laughs> oh yeah. Don't be afraid to make mistakes either. That too. Yeah. Especially for young, early career scientists and students. You're not gonna be good at it from the start. So just go in expecting failure and failure isn't the end of the world. You can always learn something from everything that you fail at. And it only has to work once. Well, no, <laughs> don't quote me on that, <laughs> but like you, you fail until you don't fail. And then once you find that thing that works, you can just replicate it because you found the thing that works. And now all you have to do is apply it in different situations. Every mistake you do make, you learn from. Yep. It's like you touch the hot stove. You probably won't touch it again on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Lauren, um, Thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to have you again and maybe go into that microbial, fungal, bacterial, eukaryote plant interaction. Oh, yeah. Phytoremediation. The whole spectrum of biointensive remediation strategies. <laughs> Phytomycobacterio. Uh, Phytomycobacterio. Ver remediation. <laughs> Ooh, get the worm people. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're, they're all part of the system, right? Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, so, Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. it's our pleasure. It's, it's really uh, great hearing all your perspectives here and, and helping uh, educate us and our audience in so many ways. Thanks so much for joining us, Lauren, and sharing all your insights and educating us on these somewhat complicated but very rewarding topics that are ever so important to understanding fungi and their ability to help us mitigate environmental contamination. Indeed, and hopefully in the future we'll have you back on and we can really go down the intermicrobial rabbit hole. Yeah, thanks for having me, you guys. Awesome. It's been a blast. We want to thank Lauren for sharing her perspectives and experience. Check out the notes on the show page for links to her published research papers. 
Now, before we get out of here, I have to make one correction about a, a misstatement during the discussion. When I was talking about atrazine being degraded by turkey tail fungus and how the lab-grade atrazine was easier to degrade than the commercial product, this was actually not about atrazine. It was about 2,4-D, another common herbicide, and the research indicated that it was easier for turkey tail to break down the pure stock solution of 2,4-D than 2,4-D in an amine salt form, which is how it would be more likely applied in the environment. Now they have that clarification out of the way, if you like the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, leave a review, and follow the show on Instagram and other social media platforms at Applied Mycology. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.